Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 52nd episode of the Diverse Minds Podcast. And today's episode is going to be all about the messy myth of meritocracy as a result of the A-level scandals in the UK and exam issues this summer. Now you might note it being the 52nd episode, it's actually our first birthday, but I'm going to be postponing the birthday episode to next week as I thought this was far too an important topic to talk about and I needed to address it. So if you live in the UK, I'm sure you will have seen the news in the last couple of weeks about A-level students and exams. If you don't live in the UK, A-levels are the exams our 17 to 18 year olds take in order to move on to higher education. And the way in which the grades were awarded this year due to no exams being sat physically as a result of COVID-19. Well, what's happened is the government decided to use initially an algorithm through Ofqual, the qualifications board, to estimate people's grades or to give them grades rather than using grades estimated by their teachers and mock exams that are taken in December. This resulted in many students being downgraded, especially those from state schools. And it also seemed, this algorithm also seemed to downgrade many students of colour and students from black global majority groups. This meant that tens of thousands of A-level students did not have the grades to take up their first choice university places. And it really prompted a lot of concerns and you might have seen the protests that young people had to do. The government did finally make a U-turn. However, many top universities gave away their places to those who had higher grades. And the students who now were given their predicted grades, their grades by their teachers, were asked to defer if there was no space left on their chosen course. Quite frankly, what a mess and how upsetting. And I don't know about you, but I saw numerous tweets from young people begging for help because also the appeals process was stymied. So Ofqual's algorithm was finally questioned after data showed its downgrading of around 40% of A-level grades in England, which is a huge number. And of course, this having an effect, a negative effect on state schools more than independent private institutions. So the news made me think a lot about the concept of meritocracy which I think about anyway, but I really felt it was important to talk about it in this context. Who is deserving and who deserved what and why? And there were some brilliant placards if you saw the student protest saying, my grades, not my postcode, and rightly so. Meritocracy derives from the word merit from Latin mereo and crassi from the ancient Greek kratos, meaning strength or power. And meritocracy is a system. Some people, some definitions incorporate political power. But the whole idea is that the individual is is in the centre of this, so that merit is all about the individual on the basis of talent, effort and achievement, rather than looking at the system around them, which could include wealth and social class. An advancement in a meritocratic framework is all about performance as measured through examinations or demonstrated achievements. Now, of course, you can see why this A-level scandal is, of course, going to impact on people's chances when we have this fake concept of a meritocratic system. And the concept of meritocracy has existed for centuries, but the term itself was coined in 1958 by the British sociologist Michael Dunlop Young, and he wrote a satirical essay called The Rise of the Meritocracy. In essence, meritocracy is a social system in which success and status in life depend on this individual and they're seen, and that's also really important, the talents that are seen, abilities and effort. 
A meritocratic system as a result often has class elements, if not always has class elements woven into it. Because if people are to advance on the basis of their so-called merit, you often need to have status and support and money and a good name so that people will champion you. And it's all about being part of the in-group, part of the majority. So for those of you who have done unconscious bias training, you'll know about the in-groups and out-groups. And so those who have access to wealth have access to more opportunities and resources. Life is less of a daily battle to have to put food on the table and try and find and keep a damp-free home. So why should you care about this topic? And why would I want to link it to the A-level nightmare that students faced? Well, if you really care about inequality and want to equalise the playing field, you've got to think about the structural inequalities and systems of oppression designed and developed specifically to limit people based on their class, their socioeconomic status, their gender, race, ethnicity, nationality, ability, disability status and the way in which they experience barriers, sexuality and other social markers. So let's think about it this way. Are the people in power right now really the best people for the job? And I'll explain more. Let's take student A. They went to an inner city school. They're in an inner city school. They've got caring responsibilities, perhaps for a parent, perhaps for siblings, because their parent or parents are unwell. They perhaps have to advocate for their parents too. That could be on the basis of language. That could be on the basis of having disabilities and experiencing barriers. They have to have a job on Saturdays or in the evenings sometimes to help with family income. Now, this student A, their A-levels were initially downgraded. So they then miss out on their place at university, which they struggle to get to, which they might have saved up for. And when their grades are reinstated, their place is gone. So despite the system being against them, they have succeeded in some ways. But are they likely to receive the top job? Because will they be able to then do the course they want the following year? How much harder are they going to have to slog and work compared with student B? And let's say student B has been educated in a private independent school. They have a well-connected family. They receive higher than predicted grades by the algorithm because they are at an independent private school, which they then get to keep because those grades are higher than the actual grades they were predicted. They go to a top university and they do okay. But due to connections, they get a very well-paying job and they have no debt that they have to pay off. But are they really the best person for the job or part of the in-group that means they have systemic advantage? So it is vital to be fair, proportional and contextual in the way in which we assess candidates for jobs and have positive action initiatives. Positive action is all about getting someone to the door. It is not leaving the back door open so they can crawl in. But interestingly, in a meritocratic system, this happens very often. And this is why it's so important. Now, this is not a problem that we can solve overnight. However, thinking more deeply about this topic and questioning our own views as to what is best and how we can change the system is vital. The myth of meritocracy does nothing to help create equality at work, at home or in society, especially if we think about the mental load and the extra caring responsibilities women in the UK still experience and have to carry the burden of. But there's a concept I've been reading about called functiocracy. And I've taken this from the Young Foundations Anthology, and this is, I've shared the link in the show notes, and this is a piece written by David Civil. And he talks about functiocracy is governed by the formula of social need plus democracy, which equals function. Now, a social need could be anything from healthcare to childcare, but it must be democratically identified by the community as a whole. The functiocracy is a society where individuals are rewarded on the basis of their contribution to the flourishing of the community as a whole. And the principles, he argues, of functiocracy could help remedy some of the problems generated by meritocracy. 
So firstly, while marginal inequalities may still exist, they would be democratically legitimised and serve a social function. That secondly, the contribution of everyone is valued. Employment would be purposeful and stimulating, serving the community at large. And thirdly, democracy would be revitalised as every citizen helps to identify social needs and contributes to satisfying them. David Civil argues that functiocracy would help remedy some of the defects generated by meritocracy. So firstly, more equality. That functiocracy would recognise that creating a sustaining and flourishing community requires diversity and individuality. It re would, would reward those who contribute to satisfying social needs, from the responsible business leader to the full-time carer, with dignity and respect. While marginal inequalities may still exist, these would be legitimated by the community at large and would serve a social function. That secondly, there would be more engagement. Every individual contributing to the flourishing of the community would have a stake in society. So there wouldn't be groups that would be left on the fringes. And the democracy, the kind of collective consciousness, would be revitalised as every citizen has a role in identifying and satisfying social needs. And thirdly, there would be more direction. So all work which contributed to satisfying social needs would be valued, rewarded and respected. Unlike now, where we have bankers on a really high level of pay and carers who keep people alive on very low pay. But by spreading resources more fairly, access to leisure and educational opportunities would be more widely available. And I've just given a snapshot, so please do have a look in the show notes if you want to read more. But I was thinking about how do we relate this then to the workplace and job interviews and recruitment and also redundancy processes? And the first thing I would say is, do we really need to know which schools people have gone to or went to when they do the job applications? I think probably not. And this might alleviate a lot of this myth and the sense of meritocracy and someone having been to a good school. It's also really important to remember that school doesn't serve everyone equally. School is great for some people while it doesn't suit others, perhaps those who had undiagnosed specific learning differences such as dyslexia or ADHD or ADD, but then they've absolutely excelled when they've left school and they've got tons of experience. We do need more context around grades. Exams are important, but, they, but are they the whole picture? Especially for people who have just left university, and this could be people of any age, mature students, people who are carers and have gone back. Do we really need to know what grades they have for their careers? Now, I know for some professions this might be absolutely crucial, but not for all of them. How can we measure the contribution and value add that people make to society? What questions could we ask at job interviews and application forms? And also, should we be providing templates for people to fill in as opposed to CVs, where certain people will know what someone's looking for and other people's CVs would not be up to scratch? That in itself is a way of equalising the playing field. And it's not about prying into someone's private life, but context is absolutely crucial, particularly when it comes to admissions for courses and new and top roles. So could we ask questions that are sensitive about context? Um, and each organisation will do this differently. But this could also be used for people who are looking for roles on boards, who have an influence into governance of organisations. We don't really need to know about their grades, do we? But we do need to know about their contribution. And if a particular company is looking for skills for their board, how this individual has added value and added contribution into society, which can then help that organisation. And I think this is a really crucial part. It also creates role models for other people to get involved in and see and think that actually I can do it too. So if you're really serious about equality, diversity and inclusion and you want to hit the targets or your aspirations or your strategy, then thinking about this concept of meritocracy and the quote unquote best person is really important because we've got to start shifting systems thinking. 
So I've discussed why meritocracy is not a good model, the myth, the negative impacts, how students have been and are being failed, and also a few alternatives in terms of the workplace, but also for boards and trustees. So I really hope that you found this useful, and I also really hope that you might like to find out more. So I've included a couple of resources, a Guardian article about the myth of meritocracy, two in fact, um, one is called The Myth of Meritocracy, Who Really Gets What They Deserve. The second one, Meritocracy, The Great Delusion That Ingrains Inequality. A book uh, that was re released recently in March 2020 by Daniel Markovitz, who's a law professor at Harvard, The Meritocracy Trap. And a really great book called Bounce, The Myth of Talent by Matthew Saeed. And this was published in 2010. So some of the wording is probably a little bit out of date, but the concepts about the myth of talent and this myth of meritocracy and natural aptitude versus putting graft in and how people get to where they need to be. And also Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. That is a fantastic book. You might like to talk to me about this subject more, so don't forget you can book your free 30-minute call with me on my Calendly at calendly.com forward slash Layla O. And I really hope you've enjoyed this show. And if you have, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast, because I'd love to hear from you and know what you thought. So I'll see you in the next episode where I promise I will be celebrating the first anniversary of the Diverse Minds podcast. Thanks for listening to the Diverse Minds podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcasts from. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Tune into next week's episode of the podcast, where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now.